Chapter 4 of The Duck-Footed Hound by Jim Geljard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Harky Goes Fishing When Mun sent him out to Hokhorn, Harky knew better than to protest or evade. An outright refusal would instantly bring the flat of Mun's hand against the nearest part of Harky's anatomy that happened to be in reach. Evasion would rouse Mun's suspicions, and, like as not, bring a surveillance so close that Harky would find escape impossible. Campaigns must be planned. When Mun said, You go hoe the corn, Harky answered meekly, Yes, Pa, and he did his best to seem enthusiastic as he shouldered the hoe and strode off toward the cornfield. The field was a full three hundred yards from the house, and if one were fleet enough of foot, one might throw one's hoe down the instant one arrived and simply start running. Harky had long ago learned the futility of such tactics. Mun was winded like a bear, gifted with the speed of a greyhound, and he knew all the hiding places Harky might be able to reach if all he had was a three hundred yard start. He knew some that were even farther away. When it came to finding his son, Harky sometimes believed Mun had a nose fully as keen as precious Sue's when she was sniffling out a coon. Sue provided an interesting diversion of thought as Harky marched manfully toward the cornfield. Neither she nor Old Joe had been seen since that fateful night in February, and though of course Old Joe seemed to be immortal, available evidence indicated that Sue had been swept under the ice and drowned in Willow Brook. It could be, but Harky had a feeling about Sue. She couldn't have been more than a couple of jumps behind when Old Joe jumped into Willow Brook, and if one had escaped, why hadn't both? Though there was always a possibility that the ice had held for Old Joe and broken for Sue, in Harky's opinion, the current where the ice broke should not have been too strong for a swimmer of Sue's talent. Naturally, the catastrophe had not gone unchallenged. Except for essential tasks, farm work ended the day after Sue disappeared. As Munn explained it, a body could always get more cows or pigs, or even another farm. But there's only one coon hound like precious Sue. Munn was not unduly optimistic when he began the search, for after all Sue had run in the dark of the moon. But the fact that Sue was doomed by the gods did not prevent Mun's pressing the hunt with utmost vigor. Mun and Harky traveled up Willowbrook and down, visiting every neighbor for nine miles in one direction and eleven in the other. Melly Garson hadn't seen Sue. Though Melly had not seen her, he recognized a genuine emergency and joined the hunt for her. So did Ross Danfield, Butt Johnson, Bear Penn Crawford, Pine Heglin, and Mule Domster. After two weeks, it was sadly concluded that Precious Sue had indeed placed herself beyond hope of redemption when she took off after Old Joe in the dark of the moon. The searchers gathered in Mun Mundy's kitchen, decided that Sue's mortal remains would come to rest in an undetermined number of miles down Willow Brook, since it was impossible to tell where the breakup would carry her, and they drank a solemn toast to the memory of a great coon hound. And Harky still had a feeling. He reached the cornfield and, as though his heart were really in it, started hoeing at the right place. The right place, naturally, was the side nearest the house. Mun Monday would have reason to wonder if Harky evinced too much interest in starting near the woods. As he began the first row, which was thirty yards long, when one was not hoeing it and thirty miles when one was, Marky mentally reviewed his caches of fishing tackle. Upstream, thirty steps north, eight east and ten south from a round rock above the first riffle, which in turn was above the first pool where a snapping turtle 
with a pockmarked shell lived, a line and three hooks were hidden in a hollow stump. Downstream, on a straight line between the pool where Precious Sue had jumped an almost black coon and the white birch in which she'd bathed it, a line and two hooks were concealed in last year's nest of a song sparrow. Harky worried about that cache. It had been all right two days ago because he'd seen it, and most birds had already nested, but some would nest a second time, and the ruins of this old nest might be summarily appropriated for a new one. His line would disappear too, and like as not his hooks. Birds were not particular as long as they had something to hold their nests together. As soon as he found another place not likely to attract Mun's eye, perhaps he'd better move his tackle from the nest. Good hooks and line were not so easy come by that a man could get reckless with them. Leaning slightly forward, the position in which Mun thought the wielder of a hoe would do most work, and slanting his hoe at an angle Mun favored, Harky sighed resignedly as the blade uncovered a fat and wriggling earthworm. He did not dare pick it up and put it in his pocket. Harky had never seen the need of bait containers, for there were times when Mun seemed to have as many as a centipede had legs, and an eagle's sight in all of them. If he saw Harky put anything in his pocket, and he would see, he'd be present on the double. Well, there were plenty of worms to be had by probing in moist earth near pools and sloughs. The trouble with them was that they were accustomed to water, and they did not wriggle much when draped on a hook and lowered into it. Garden worms, on the other hand, were so shocked by an unfamiliar environment that they wriggled furiously and attracted bigger fish. The sun grew hot on Harky's back, but his body was too young, too lithe, and too well-conditioned to rebel at this relatively light labor. His soul ached. Of all the vegetables calculated to bedevil human beings, he decided growing corn was the worst. He tried to find solace by thinking of the good features of corn, and happily alighted on the fact that it attracts coons. Also, it tasted good when stripped milky from the stalk and either boiled or roasted. However, the coons would come anyhow. If there was no corn, they'd still be attracted by the apples in one's orchard, and if the Mundies had no corn, neighbors who did would be glad to share with them. Meanwhile, this patch must be hoed a few million times. Harky pondered a question that has bemused all great philosophers. How can humans be so foolish? Working at that rhythmic speed, which Mun considered ideal for hoeing corn, missing not a single stroke, Harky went on. Discontent became anguish, and anguish mounted to torture. But Harky knew that the wrong move now might very well be ruinous. Like all people with great plans and strong opposition, he must suffer before he gained his ends. But he'd suffer only half as much if the master strategy he'd work out did not fail him. Exactly halfway across the first row, Harky turned and started back on the second. It was a bold move, and Harky's heart began to flutter the instant he made it. But the situation called for bold moves. Harky did not break the rhythm of his hoeing or look up when he heard Mun approach, and he managed to look convincingly astonished when Mun asked, What you up to, Harky? Harky glanced up quickly. Oh, hello, Pa. I said, Mun repeated. What you up to? Why, what do you mean, Pa? You know blasted well what I mean, Mun growled. You didn't do but half the first row. Oh! Harky might have been a patient teacher instructing a backward pupil. He gestured toward tall trees that, in a couple of hours, would keep the sun from the far half of the corn patch. The sun, Pa, 
It's high and warm now, but it'll be high and hot time I get this first half done. Then I can work in the shade. Mun scowled, suspecting a trick and reasonably sure there was one, but unable to fly in the face of such clear-cut logic. If he thought of it, he conceded, he'd plan to hoe the corn that way himself. As he turned on his heel and started walking away, he flung another warning over his shoulder. I hope you don't aim to scoot off and go fishing. Oh, no, Pa. Suddenly, because he'd have to hoe only half the corn patch, Harky's burdens became half as heavy. It had worked, as he hoped it would, and the most tangled knot in his path was now a smooth string. Of course, he was not yet clear, but even Mun could not watch him constantly, and once he was near enough the woods to duck into them, Harky would be satisfied with a ninety-second head start. Two hours later, having hoed his way to the edge of the woods, Harky dropped his hoe and started running. When Mun Mundy would shortly be on one's trail, one must ignore nothing, and all this had been planned, too. Harky took the nearest route to Willow Brook. So far, so good, but strictly amateur stuff. Mun, who'd need no blueprint to tell him where Harky had gone, would also take the shortest path to Willow Brook. Harky put his master strategy into effect. Coming to a patch of mud on the downstream side of a drying slough, Harky ran straight across it the while he headed upstream. He emerged on a patch of new grass that held no tracks, leaped sideways to a boulder, and hop-skipped across Willow Brook on exposed boulders. Reaching the far side, he ran far enough into the forest to be hidden by foliage and headed downstream. With the comfortable feeling of achievement that always attends a job well done, Harky slowed to a walk. Mun, hot in pursuit and even more hot in the head, would see the tracks leading upstream. Thereafter, for at least a reasonable time, he would stop to think of nothing else. By the time he did and searched all the upstream hiding places, Harky would be a couple of miles down. He knew of several pools that had their full quota of fish, and that were so situated that a man could lie behind willows, fish, and see a full quarter of a mile upstream the while he remained unseen. His heart light and his soul at peace, Harky almost started to whistle. He thought better of it. Mun Mundy never had mastered the printed word, but his eyes were geared to tracks and his ears to the faintest noises. If Harky whistled, he might find his fishing suddenly and rudely interrupted. The softest-footed bobcat had nothing on Mun when it came to silent stalks. More than once, when Harky thought his father was fuming at home, Mun had risen up beside him and applied the flat of his hand where it did the most good. Harky contented himself with dancing along, and he never thought of the reckoning that must be when he returned home tonight, because in the first place tonight was a long ways off. In the second, there were always reckonings of one sort or another. A man just had to take care he got his reckonings worth. Harky halted and stood motionless as any boulder on Dewberry Knob. A doe with twin fawns, and none of the three even suspecting that they were being watched, moved delicately ahead of him. Harky frowned. It was a mighty puzzling thing about deer, and indeed about all wild creatures. Except for very young poultry, a man could tell at a glance whether most farm animals were boys or girls, and that was that. He could never be sure about wild ones, largely because he could never come near enough, and there might be something in Melly Garson's theory that the young of all wild creatures were alike, a sort of neuter gender, until they were six months old. Then they talked it over among themselves and decided which were to be males and which females. 
Thus, they always strike a proper balance. It was a sensible system, if Melly were correct, though Harky was by no means sure that he was. Neither could he be certain Melly was wrong, and as the doe and her babies moved out of sight, Harky wondered what sex the two fawns would choose for themselves when they were old enough to decide. Two does, maybe, or perhaps two bucks, though it would be better if one were a doe and the other a buck. Both were needed, and the creeping hills without deer would be nearly as barren as they would without coons. When the doe and her babies were far enough away, so that there was no chance of frightening them, a man never would get in rifle shot of a buck if he scared it while it was still a fawn, Harky went on down the creek. He stopped to watch a red-headed woodpecker rattling against a dead pine stub. He frowned. The next job Mun had slated for him was putting new shingles on the chicken house, and the woodpecker's rattling was painfully similar to a pounding hammer moving at about the same speed that Mun would expect Harky to maintain. Obviously finding something it did not like, the woodpecker stopped rattling, voiced a strident cry, and flew away. It was a bad omen, and Harky's frown deepened. He'd seen himself in the woodpecker, just as the bird had come to grief, so Harky was sure to meet misfortune if he tried shingling the chicken house. He'd have to think his way out of that chore too. But the shingling was still far in the future, and the only future worth considering was embodied in what happened between now and sundown. Troubles could be met when they occurred. When Harky was opposite the pool where Precious Sue had jumped the almost black coon, he turned at right angles. It was scarcely discreet to go all the way and show oneself at the edge of Willow Brook, for though Munn should have been lured upstream, he might have changed his mind and come down. As soon as he could see the pool through the willows that bordered it, Harky turned and sighted on the white birch in which Sue had finally treed the coon. He was about to start toward it, but remained rooted. Suddenly, he heard precious Sue growl. Not daring to believe, but unwilling to doubt his own ears, Harky turned back to the pool. He peered through the willows and saw the pup. End of chapter 4